There, there's evidence this morning that spiritual battles are still lost once in a while. I, I lost one with the tie this morning. My wife said, you're, you're going to wear a tie? Did you even wear a tie on our wedding day? I, I don't think so, babe. Wanna, on a serious note, just continue to pray for our pastor. Um, he's had some radical uh, you know, soreness and problems with his throat, and his voice is, has been going out for the last few weeks, so if you could lift him up in prayer and continue to pray for him, and uh, also we want to just welcome, excuse me, all of the new people this morning, welcome to Reverence Bible Church, and uh, we, play, we pray you have a, an awesome morning this morning worshiping the Lord with us. So why don't we open up in word of prayer this morning to get into the message that I have entitled the initiative of God and man's redemption. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning. There are great and mighty truths yet for us to grasp at a deeper level, to know more, to understand more about the way that you move, you operate in the heavens from decisions that you have made from eternity past regarding our lives, regarding our destiny, regarding the world. I pray this morning would bring us the greatest comfort and assurance to know that as we stand here and sit here Christians today, believers, that it was not solely based on our own work, that there was something you were doing long before to bring us to yourself. May that bring us great rest this morning. And we ask these things in the name of Jesus, amen. There was a... a young Scotchman who wanted to teach President Ulysses Grant uh, how to golf. So he took him out on the course and he set his ball on the tee and he set it down and he took the first swing and he whiffed and hit the dirt and dirt flew all over the president and all over his beard and as gracious as the president was, he sat there patiently and the young Scotchman got his club again and he he went for the ball and whiffed it again and whiffed it again and whiffed it again. And the president, as patient as he was, stepped in and he said, I see that there's great exercise in the game, but I'm failing to see the purpose of the ball. Meaning the very thing that was supposed to bring you the most joy and value to the game, you're missing completely. And I look at the issue as far as even reflecting in my own life and maybe as the aspect of the church itself as a whole of salvation, it's often viewed too cheaply, it's often esteemed too lightly, and we understand it too minimally, and we fail to connect with the majority of its precious and great truths. There are stories, I believe, that are in the Bible that from first glance it looks like men wander into this relationship with God and at any time they at whim they can just move and advance towards a righteous and holy God but I think as we look further in detail in some of these stories and at least the one that we're going to look at today there's something that is going on behind the scenes that is far greater and mysterious and wonderful and powerful than maybe we will ever know and that is We sit here today because God was doing a preemptive work in our lives to draw us to himself. And if he didn't draw us to himself, we would stay in the course of being lost forever. 
That is his goodness. One of these stories is the prodigal son. This story captures the the insight on how a sinner that is separated from God truly is brought home to the fold, is safely secure, and is in the hands and, and under the covering and blessing of his father, saved, sought, and brought home. And at first glance, it looks like, we've all, we all know this story, Luke 15. We, it looks like this, this, this young man who despised his father and was in rebellion to his father and took what his father had and went off and lived extravagantly and prodigally. It looks like in this story that all of a sudden he just came to his senses and he says, I'm going to return to my father. And from first glance, it does look like that. But as we do a little bit more investigating, is that really what happened? Or was there something behind the scenes that was happening already? Because how does a person who is enslaved to sin, in rebellion to God, how does a person who is submitted his life into another citizen of that country, looking at Satan in that picture, or the mastery of sin. How is it that that person at any time in his life could freely just move in advance towards a God who was holy without God mercifully drawing him? And I would say that he never finds his way on his own home. That there is in this parable... There is a work to be discovered, a truth to be discovered. What is happening in this parable is that Jesus obviously is sitting with sinners and tax collectors, the worst of the kind in in the nation of Israel. And the religious leaders come to him and they begin to to get on him because how can you you be the Messiah, be sitting with with these scummy people, they're, they're the defilement of the nation. And it says that Jesus spoke this parable, not three parables, this parable to them. And this parable has three different scenes in it that is really important. Because we always really focus on the first, the last part, which is the father receiving that which was wayward back to himself. But what's happening, I want to look at in these first two scenes of the one parable. There is a shepherd who has gone after the sheep. There is a light that has been illuminated in order to search for the lost coin. And then, and only then, is there a father that receives that which was wayward. Does that make sense? Is is that a beautiful picture as we look into the triunity of God in the redemption of man, knowing that he sends out the son to go rescue the sheep and put it on his shoulders and take it back to him. He sends the spirit of God to illuminate that which is darkened and lost in sin and quickening our hearts. And then he receives the sinner to himself. So that's what we're going to look at today, the working of the Godhead in the redemption of man. Let's read the text, Luke chapter 15, verse 1. Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him, drew near to hear him, and the Pharisees and scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and and eats with them. So he spoke this parable to them, this parable to them, saying, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep 
which was lost. I say to you that likewise, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having 10 silver coins, if she loses it, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, first thing, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I lost. Likewise, I say to you, there is more joy in the presence, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. My point in the opening illustration is that I think as Christians, sometimes we do not connect the greater picture of why we're here and why we are his and why we are saved and how we came to get saved. Because if we can grab partially that mysterious, wonderful work of God that has been happening in our lives, we will live this life a lot more victorious, a lot more confident, and a lot more with a lot more assurance. And the first thing we want to look at is God goes after the lost. The lost didn't go after God. This is a picture of the shepherd. We look in the Old Testament, Ezekiel 34, 11. This is what the sovereign Lord says. I myself will search for my sheep and go after them. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them, so I will look after my sheep. I will search for the lost and I will bring back the strays. Again, this parable is a response to the religious mind, the religious leaders, about how the sinner is brought back to a right relationship with its creator. The religious environment of the time and the mindset of the time was these types of people, the sinners, tax collectors, prostitutes, all these, this group over here, this, this ugly group, we would be better off without them. If we could rid the land of them, lock them up, do whatever we're going to do, they're, they're really kind of defiling our religious system. And Jesus goes into this parable and says, which of you having 99 sheep, if you lost one, wouldn't go after the one that was lost? Sheep and coins are extremely valuable to the Jewish culture. I mean, these are things that are spoken of to show us that they're extremely valuable. Jesus knows that if a sheep was lost that it would not find its way back to the shepherd. Matter of fact, it needed to be gone after. You and me, especially me, needed to be gone after, sought, pursued by a God who is extravagantly in love with us and desiring us. The word lost here, apolome, the, the sheep that was lost. Lost to eternal destruction, it means. To perish. The sheep was not a little broken. The sheep was not a little lost. The sheep was totally lost on its way to being destroyed. It's actually in the perfect active participle in the original language, which means, because it's in the perfect verb, the word lost, it means that there was a past action in this sheep's life, so to speak, that has a current and ongoing effect to it now. What was the past action? The past action in the sheep's life was that there was sin. The past action was Adam's sin. 
The continuing result was that you are lost eternally, perfectly, and continually because of that sin. You and me, the whole world, the lost sheep of Israel included, that we were perfectly, if you will, and totally lost. There was no program that would save them. There was no religious system. There was no obedience to the strictness of the law or the rabbi's interpretation of it. There was nothing that could save them. They needed to be gone after and carried home safely. We see a glimpse into the greatness and the affections of our God's heart towards lost sinners. Sheep, as Kevin talked about a few weeks ago, they're so dumb. They will cry out. And they will cry out for their, their others in their flock. And whatever they do, they cry out. That was probably a little better than Kevin's. I heard his. It wasn't that good. But they'll cry out. And they will hear the shepherd's voice. And they'll hear the others in the flock. But what will they do? They will move in the opposite direction. It's like, it's your nature. It's the sheep's nature to move in the opposite direction of the shepherd. He's using the illustration because it is our very nature in the condition of being lost. Which, which this makes salvation so beautiful is that we move in the opposite direction of our God. Holiness, unholiness. Righteousness, unrighteousness. We are moving in opposite directions. We are moving in opposite direction to him. And we have no sense of getting back on our own. You say, wait a minute. I do some pretty good things. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty good. I don't think I'm moving in the opposite direction of God. Well, what is God's assessment of the world? As the psalmist would write, to settle the issue, Psalm 14, 3. The Lord looks down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if they are any one who understand. What is understanding? He qualifies it, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. He looks from heaven and he says, the, the, the scope of earth, it's spiritually dead. There's nobody. Everybody is in this condition of being lost. They're moving away from me, not towards me. It, it was in the summer of 1996 that I understood for the first time what the wages of sin would do to an individual's life. I I had seen the sheep that had gone before me in my little surrounding of people, uh, definitely not walking with the Lord. The scattered sheep along the roadsides of life who were killed, who overdosed, who ran their lives into immorality, who just had reckless compulsion to sin. I found myself in, a, in the L.A. County Jail for probably about the, I don't know, maybe 14th, 15th time. I had no understanding of God, one iota. You could have given me the Westminster Catechism and, and put it in front of me and said, well, how does this look? I would have read it and it would have been 
obsolete. I would have not understood a thing. I had no Bible. I had no understanding of God. I stood there as dead as a dead man could stand. I needed a divine rescue. You needed a divine rescue. You may be like, but I wasn't like you. you. You are separated. You were separated from God, as every man was. And so the first thing is to look at in this thing is the son went after the sheep. Grab this principle and truth that the son went after. You were that valuable to God that he had decreed from before the world began that you were his and I was his. And he sent in this first scene the son to go get them because they'll never come to me on my own, on their own. They will never wander towards the fold. They will never be restored to me on their own merits or righteousness. Son, go get them. And the sheep goes and gets the lost and puts it on his shoulders. And what joy should that bring us to know that he came for us and we didn't go to him? What joy is that? Because if God goes after the sheep... He must know who his sheep are. Number two, God is persistent in bringing home those that are his. If you look in verse five, he searches until he finds the sheep. In verse six, and when he finds the sheep, he searches until he finds the sheep, and when he finds the sheep. Sounds pretty certain to me. He's going to find what he's looking for. We know that, listen, all men are not saved. We look at the different theological ways to understand and look at salvation. We, we, we know that there are groups of people that believe in universalism, meaning that, you know, at the end, love wins. We've been hearing that a lot, but love wins, and God's going to save everybody, and really the death of Christ and repentance and faith in him and all those different things are really kind of obsolete. But love wins. He's going to save all. We know that's not true. Because we see that in the text. Did God, the second point, provide a possibility for all men to be saved and left it to them to do it? Or was there a third possibility as well that God chose some to be saved according to his own good purpose and he assured that that would happen? Now I know that there are great, as I say that, you're like, oh man, did he, did he say that from the pulpit? Yes. I know this is a hot debatable issue and there are probably a majority of us in this room that would grapple back and forth on the topic I understand that but I you know in my own life I've just really meditated on what the scriptures say and my own personal conviction in this area is if, if I was left to myself God help me I would still be that old man And you would still be that old person. I believe that. But that God did something so profound from eternity past to assure that those that were his would come to life and come to eternal life. That he was responsible for making it work. We know there are different views on the way to look at this. There's the foreknowledge view of salvation which says that, you know, okay, if God from eternity past, he looked down the corridor of life. He saw 2015. He saw Jimmy and Susie were going to choose him, so he appointed them to eternal life based on what they did, their decision of him. There's one way to look at it. Or you look at the view 
the predestination view that would say God determined beforehand those that were his. It's according to the own counsel of his will. It's mysterious to us. It wrecks our thinking. It wrecks our flesh and our pride to, to stake a claim in anything and say, I did this. It was because of me. He makes a decision and calls it into being now that we came to life. Because if God didn't choose us and he didn't make that choice come to be, where would we really be? It's clear the sheep didn't look for the shepherd and the coin didn't look for the one who lost it in this parable. Paul writes, he chose us. In him, before the foundation of the world began. He predestined us to adoption as the sons by Jesus Christ to himself. Here it is. According to the good pleasure of his will. Who was it according to? Was it according to the decision that we would make one day? Or was it according to the good pleasure of his will that he determined beforehand? Again, That wrecks my mind. I can't quite understand why God would choose me. But if you're happy about that today, could you rejoice with me? Amen. That he hasn't left it to us to determine if we would choose him or not. That he came and initiated and went and sent the Son, illuminated with the Spirit, and then he received us to himself. Having made known the mystery of his will, that was the church. Those would determine to be his according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself having predestined according to the purpose of him, there it is again, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Nine times he says, it's him, it's him, it's him, it's him. You sit here today, I sit here today, and maybe you're not at that place where you're like, I'm definitely his, and I know that it wasn't because of me. Maybe you're there, but you've been drawn here. The Lord is after you. The Lord is pursuing you. The Holy Spirit is convicting you. And you're to yield and submit to that conviction. And love Christ and see what he is doing in pursuing you. Because as a Christian, it can be a joyless battle in this Christian life. And I see, I've seen this in my life, my own life for so long. If we do not understand what God has done for us beforehand, how will we live joyful and and victorious in every day, especially what our world's going through, the things we may go through, if I don't know. Before it all, I miss, it was like the golfer. You're missing the main thing. The ball, God chose you in him. Now go and live joyfully. I mean, for years I would read this passage in Ephesians and I was so offended. Like, that's, like, how can he do that? Like, That's not right. I've got to do something. I've got to prove myself some way. I mean, I'm a man still. I've got testosterone. I'm not going to go any further than that, but I want to prove myself some way that I'm worthy and I'm good. And he just wrecks this. He takes our pride in our works and he just just shreds it and he says, "It's, it's according, you're here I'm yours, you're mine, because it's according to my good pleasure, according to my will that I determine beforehand. 
I initiated this romance, if you will, this love between you and I. I marked you out. I predestined you. I decided beforehand so that you would walk in this life and have great assurance. Never doubting, did I do enough? Am I serving enough? Does he love me today? And all those things Kevin and the pastors here have repeated over and over. It's like, I know. Called me beforehand. I'm his. Now I'm going to live totally different. Romans 9, 11. In God's choice of Jacob. For the children had not been born, him or Esau, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God, according to election, might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. He goes on, so then, it is not of him who wills, not of him who runs, but it is of God who shows mercy. The problem with mercy in our view of mercy is that we think that mercy is obligatory. We think that that God owes us mercy. And he says in the scriptures that I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And you don't worry about that. Everybody here, I imagine, has been shown the mercy of God. Because he has not given us what we deserve. He has drawn us to ourselves. He has given us the air that we breathe and the grace that we receive. And we're walking in this life as, as believers and Christians because he had mercy on us. What joy did this bring to the Apostle Paul's life as he looked back on this very truth? As the Lord said to him in Acts 9.5, why are you kicking against the goads? In verse 15 he says, this guy is a chosen vessel of mine. It's like, who's a chosen vessel? The rebellion religious guy? That's him. I've chosen beforehand to use him for my purposes. So you, so you receive him. Why are you kicking Paul against the goads? Why are you thwarting what I want to do in your life? Why are you trying to outdo my love? Why are you trying to run from me? Don't you know that my purpose in your life will stand and I will wear you down by my goodness and I will continue after you, church? Listen, especially if you are here this morning and you are still in that place where you're like, man, I am not there. I am running from God. But I keep coming back to this place of church or somebody keeps inviting me and I keep having this conviction and I'm not really sure about this. You are running and God's like, I'm coming. Just turn to me and submit your will to me. Look at the goodness I have for you in your life. That Paul saw the persistence of God in the midst of his rebellion. Just think about that for a minute. In the, you weren't born Christian apart from popular notion today. I wasn't born a Christian. Nobody was born a Christian because I'm an American, I'm not a Christian. The same way, Spurgeon said, the same way that God ordered the first creation, he ordered the second. The first creation of the world, the second, the new creation of the new birth. The persistence of God to bring us to him. I look back, all that I did, all that I was, the destruction that I left, that God still pursued me and was patient with me, he wore me down and put me in a place where there was no, there was just, there was just no 
there was no place except for he was there. And his arms carried me. And his arms carried you. The son rescued him, Paul, out of his religious system according to the effectual call of God. Paul sits in jail at the end of his life, towards the end, and he writes, I'm assured of this very thing. He who began a good work, who began the good work? He didn't say, man, I'm assured of this. That one day, man, I went after God, woo, I hit the jackpot. I really scored that day. He said, no, I'm assured of this. He began this work in me because I thought it was okay and I wasn't. I was deceived by religion and deception. And I thought that doing this and that made me right with God, but I was so far from that. He began the good work and he will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. So if the son is persistent in bringing home those that are his, by what strength does he carry them home? Number three, God shows it is his strength that carry his sheep. Look in verse five. Where does he lay the sheep? Does he drag them with a rope? And he's like, come on, you dumb sheep. What's your problem? You're always going wayward. You're pointless. You're meaningless. You mean nothing to me. Just, he doesn't do that. He comes and he takes the sheep and he sets the sheep on his shoulders, which is really significant. We see a picture in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus, of the high priest who wore a breastplate. Only he would wear it. And on that breastplate, there were stones, 12 stones in the middle. They were engraved, that's very important, with the 12 tribes of Israel. They lied over the heart of the high priest as he went into the Holy of Holies and once a year and, and, and brought the people in with him. The affections of God were over his heart, meaning The affections of God were there over his people. But he had the same 12 tribes on his shoulders. What's the significance of that? When he went in to the holiness of God and to the Shekinah glory, he would bring and carry the people's burdens and all their sins and everything else. And he would say, God, I'm interceding for them. I'm here to carry them. These people out there are so weak. They can't even do what is right And you've appointed me to be the high priest. And I'm carrying them with me into the very presence of God. Jesus has become that high priest. Which intercedes for us day and night, the book of Hebrews says. And not only that, but he carries, as he carried, the high priest carried those tribes of Israel on the shoulders. Showing the significance of they don't have the strength to come to you, God. I have to carry them. When he found us, he didn't find us in a state where we were strong and mighty in our own strength. He found he had to find us in the place of broken, lost sheep. Because really, that's the condition of every one of us before Christ. He carried. He lifted up. It brings me to the imagery. Again, giving you a little bit to understand and know about me and never grew up with God 
in any way, shape, or form. My mom had maybe taken me to church once or twice, but I have no recollection anywhere at any time about any scripture, God, conversations, somebody witnessing to me, nothing. I was dead as dead could be. I was a Lazarus. That's why the Bible has Lazarus in the story. He didn't come to make Lazarus better. He came to make him alive. I had no ability to move towards God. No strength. In suicide watch, L.A. County Jail. Urinating all over myself. A little trivia about me. 16 years of full-grown sin, drug addiction, all that other stuff. That's what the result is. That's the wages. Watch the guy hang himself in that cell. Sat there with no strength. Nothing. I didn't even know about God. It wasn't like, gee, I should serve the Lord. That guy just hung himself. And by the way, I don't think he died, but it was... Pretty startling to see that. He didn't lay any burden on me. Jesus. He didn't say, if you could tell me the Ten Commandments, I'll save you. If you could do this or that, I'll save you. He knows what I needed. He knows what you needed. I need to come in and I need to lift you up and put you on my shoulders because you got nothing in you. Nothing at all. He didn't lay any burden on me. I had plenty of burden to carry. You have, been, have plenty of burden to carry. Our own guilt, our own sin, emptiness. For as Matt quoted earlier, Jesus said, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You know what a yoke is? A yoke is that wooden device that you would attach to two animals in agriculture. You would, you would yoke together two animals that are similar to one another, a young ox and an old ox. You wouldn't yoke together a donkey and an ox because it would go like this and you never get anything accomplished. Their temperament is different. When the young ox would, would fail and have no strength, the older ox would be continually pulling him. And that's the imagery. Is if you yoke yourself to me, I will carry you. I will cut this line straight between us and the Father. That You will travel in the direction that I am going in. And when you're weak, Don't worry, I'm attracted to human weakness and I will carry you. Every day, all day, I will carry you. He's the perfect person to be yoked to because as God, he's unlimited in power, strength, in authority, in perfection. He never tires, but as man, he understands weakness, temptation, Brokenness, rejection, sorrow, and loss. And he perfectly carries us through all these times in life that we face. I can say, he carried me then, he's carried me now, and he will forever carry me. Always. You look at the old church fathers, Polycarp, in 155 AD, as, as he was told, you deny Christ or you will and bow to Caesar or we are going to burn you alive. Actually, they said, we're going to throw you to the animals. He said, bring it. I'll never deny my Lord. They said, okay, well, we're going to burn you alive. And he said this.
For 86 years, I have served my Lord, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my King and Savior? Leave me as I am, he that gives me strength to endure the fire will enable me to struggle not. In your time of need, in my time of need, there is only one that will carry in the loss of a child, in the loss of a spouse, in the face of sickness or disease, whatever the curse of sin has brought to this world, there is only one that can carry through every detail of life's curse, and that is Christ alone. Only one. He's not coming to bring you into more burden and saying, I'm going to lay all this religious stuff on you. He just says, I want to carry you. Matter of fact, I have to carry you. I must carry you. Until he carries you, you will not be a sinner who is repenting. Because you will be trying to do it in your own strength. He's qualified. He carried it to the cross. He's carrying it now and he will carry it forever. The thing is that no man has the strength to come to God on his own. No man. You do not, if you are sitting here and you're thinking, you know, I got this. You do not have the strength. That's why Christ came. That's why the parable is here. You want to know how a sinner comes to his maker in a right relationship? The son goes and gets him and carries him because he could never do it at all. So if the shepherd's strength that carries us to safety, so if it's the shepherd's strength that carries us to safety, what power does the sheep have so he won't leave any more? Last point. God sent the Holy Spirit to illuminate what is lost in darkness. J.I. Packard said, Sinners cannot obey the gospel any more than the law without the renewal of heart. So true. In verse 8, we see there's a shift here. We see that first scene in this one parable of a son that went and got him. The second scene, there's this woman that appears. The point's not the woman, but it says she lights a lamp, she sweeps the house, and she searches carefully until it's found. What baffles me in the second scene is that there is an emphasis on the light that is lit. There's an emphasis that without the light, there is no sweeping, there is no cleaning, and there is no finding. Light precedes the sweeping. Is this a picture of the second person of the triune nature of God at work in our redemption? Illuminating, quickening dead hearts, bringing spiritual life, renewing our hearts so that conviction can happen, so that faith can happen, so that obedience can take place, so that we can begin to grow in the likeness of Christ? I believe so. The work of quickening our hearts out of their dead condition is imperative. Totally imperative. J.A. Motier said, Just as in the beginning God said, let there be light, and there was light, so at the moment he appointed for our new birth, he said, let there be life, and there was life. Jesus said, he who commits sin is a slave to sin. I want to know, 
How does a slave set himself free? If you're a slave to sin and I'm a slave, how does a slave set himself free? Does he ever do enough to set himself free? Or is he, a ma- is he just a puppet and his master is sin? Is he held in bondage and captivity like I was and you were? Is he held there by the grip of Satan's power and the curse of the fall, unable to release himself unequivocally? Yes, he is. How does that heart that once had no desire, no conviction, no desire to obey the gospel, now turn around and obey God and live for God without the quickening of our hearts towards God? These are mysterious and crazy like things we see in Scripture. Like, God, you were at work doing that when, when I didn't even know it? I mean, for probably 15 years of my Christian life, I would sit back and I'd be like, man, I remember that day. That's just wild, man. That guy appeared. He gave me the gospel. And, you know, I had the faith to believe. And, you know, I wrestled with that for a long time, for years. I had no faith to believe. There was something at that very moment that took place that I cannot describe that was in the mysteries of God. It took place and opened my heart in order for me to say, Christ, yes. Life come. Healing begin. Savior come. There was nothing before that. I believe this was a work of the Holy Spirit making my heart open and alive to that which was of Christ. The glory of salvation. The mind of the flesh is enmity against God. For it is, is not subject to the law of God, neither can it be. My old nature would never do what the gospel required. It would never love God nor desire God. It's hostile. I did 12-step, 7-step, 2-step, hello. Anybody do the 2-step here? That was good, huh? You like that one? Scientology, anger management, parenting classes. And there was a lot of good things in some of those few but some nothing ever changed my heart to life that's important that is the work of the holy spirit a.a hodge says whatever a man do after regeneration the first quickening of the dead must originate with god r.a tory said no amount of preaching no matter how orthodox it may be no amount of mere study of the word will regenerate unless the holy spirit works it is he and he alone who makes a man a new creature great quote i love that one i was going crazy with those quotes so they were just so good it's like how many should i put in there okay it was probably my time's up anyway i sat in that jail cell 1996 Clarence Hensley came and ministered to me, a guy I never even knew before, some inmate, God sent. Gave me the gospel. Life began. Christ carried me, just as he's carried you. He's forever carried me. How can I deny my Lord who has never failed me once, ever? It is solely has been a work of him because in verse 7 and 10, there's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. Get the end of this thing. 
The repentance is able to happen because he carried us to him, because he opened the heart, and then we came and we said, yes, I believe that. There was no repentance before I was carried. There was no repentance before my heart was quickened. I was able to say yes by the divine mercies of God towards me that were before the foundation of the world began. It was decreed so. And I've got no problem with that. Matter of fact, it makes me happy. And I hope that it makes you happy. Now you can see this. The prodigal son. Now you look at the prodigal son and you go, wait a minute. It says he came to himself. You don't think that was divine revelation? Conviction of the Holy Spirit? You look at the prodigal son. He was in severe famine, void of all righteousness. He was a slave to another, hard labor in the field, sin clutches, joyless, abandoned, no one to help, and you think he's going to wander home on his own? No way. God was at work in this story showing this is how it happens. The Son, the Spirit, bring that sinner to the Father, and all heaven rejoices. He came to himself because it was conviction. He said he had sinned. There was repentance and confession. I'm no longer worthy. That was humility. Look at all the divine characteristics that are beginning to happen in his life that are not because of him, but because of the Spirit's work. Folks, I pray that we together fall in love with him to such a degree that we say, it has been him, it will always be him, it continues to be him, I'm yielding to that, but yes, it has been him, and I can face anything because he started the good work, he'll finish it, and now I have great confidence to worship, to love others, to face struggles and hard times because it's been him the whole time. He brought you to the Father. You didn't wander to the Father, and I didn't wander to the Father. He brought us there. Why? Because he loves us and decreed it so. Does that make you happy? Or are you still like, nope? No, I, I, I definitely did it. Okay, hey, you can think that if you want. But you're going to be like I was for years. A joyless Christian. Because it was up to me to complete things and finish things and keep things going. And not up to him. Look back and see as Pastor Bill comes up and leads us in communion. We have something so wonderful to celebrate. He that began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it till the end, prodigal sons and daughters. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you that your word is deep. It has many mysteries. Your will is deep and has many mysteries. And we pray this morning that Reverence Bible Church, these that are here, us together collectively would be a church that is so full of joy and passion and excitement, able to stand in the face of anything that may come in our country, in our lives, in our bodies, or anywhere else, and that can say, He began that work and he is in total control. And you're so good, Lord, that you have not left us to ourselves to figure this out. You drew us. 
You said, Jesus, yourself, unless a man is drawn by the Father, he cannot come. Thank you for drawing us. Thank you for making us Lazarus' sons and daughters. Thank you for stopping the bleeding. In Jesus' name, amen.